Hello and welcome to another episode of Pixel Pals. My name is Zach and today I'm joined by my good friend. Santa dude. Little switcheroo for you guys today. What? Keeping you on your toes every episode. Bro, how was your weekend? It was good. Uh, We streamed the Lego Star Wars, the new one, and that was a total blast. I'm definitely picking that up for myself after that. Yeah, it's not even recency bias. It's far and away like the best Lego game I think they've ever done because I played the original two Lego Star Wars games when it first, like maybe a weekend before they came out, the new one came out, and they're fine still. They, They hold up pretty well to this day, but this game just is far and away just... Uh, something special for us because those games came out when we were very young yeah. and i mean for me that was some of my first exposure to video games in general i just love me a good two-player game honestly it just does nothing beats that couch co-op it doesn't like mode that you get from uh you know lego games. like lego games or even recently like it takes two or oh uh, yeah uh army of one or not uh gears of war is another gears of war example. is a great one yeah so we have a little bit of news that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Sony is going to invest a billion dollars into Epic Games and also says that NFTs are the future of gaming. Uh, Lego is in there somewhere. Le- yeah, I think Lego Company and Sony, I think it was a collective, or I don't know if they collectively invested or if they both invested into Epic Games. Um, but either way, the Lego Company is somehow involved with the whole Epic Games thing. I like 50% of that news. I like Sony investing into Epic Games. I like what they're doing. Epic Games has really been killing it. You know, Fortnite has been just doing great, great things. Don't like NFTs. Yeah, we're we're kind of against them on here. And it's just, we're not going to get into it. But do you think it's going to be like the microtransaction debacle? I think that there's going to be, there has been enough pushback in the community to like stop NFTs from happening in games, but there's also like a really strong vocal, you know, support for it. So it could really go either way. And I don't want to, I don't want to spend my time worrying about that because if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. I'm not worried about it. I just think it's funny that everyone is saying this. I feel like Anytime I go and look at what's the future of games, everyone's saying NFTs, NFTs. And that's what they said about microtransactions, too. And look how that went. Yeah. Uh, also, the Sonic director wants to make a Smash movie. Uh, Zach, you saw the Sonic movie. How did you like it? I thought it was a really good kids movie. You know, I mean, I'm 25. I'm not the target demographic <laughs> at all. But um, I brought one of the kids that I work with to see it and he loved it he was cracking up the whole time afterwards he was telling me because they set up all sequels he was talking about what that could mean all that stuff so i and i mean the the theater was filled with kids and they were all loving it so i think that for it's a must-see kids movie definitely but if you're like me and you're just 25 and you're gonna go with a couple of your friends your age probably don't go see it it's not like you know it's Nothing yeah. crazy, but unless you're like a diehard Sonic fan, I feel oh, like yes. you're not gonna enjoy it too much. Uh a movie that I do want to see though is everywhere, everything all at once. I think I got that right. Um, Dude, I'll go see it with you. Yeah, Nicole, I, we should but... definitely because it's it's looks very good. Yeah, man. Nicole does not want to go see that one. So I will hundred percent go see that with you if you need some little to uh movie date. Little Pixel Pals hit the movies. Um yeah, I what do you think of I mean, it, there's nothing confirmed at all he's just saying because i think he was asked in an interview oh what do you think because you know 
Mar- the Mario movie is going to be coming as well. Yeah. Sonic and Mario, both players in Smash. I don't know what the plot would be. Because, like, even, like, the campaign mode in Super Smash is always, like, very convoluted. And it's just, like, there's not really an enemy. It's just, like, stages that get progressively harder. Now, let me pitch you an idea. Just do the original Smash characters. You know, you get Mario. You get Link, Pikachu, Kirby, Samus. You don't, like, you know, don't get... We don't need the 90, 100-odd-some roster that we have now. Just have it be the... Yeah, like the OGs. The OGs, maybe, you know, and just have it be a tournament-style movie. Maybe have it be like a team where it's like, okay, Link and Kirby versus Mario and Pikachu, and then, you know, having the teams have to fight each other and have it be a tournament movie and see which team gets to the top. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I do not see the Smash community taking any outcome. Oh, They're, I, no. They are I, some of the most critical people they really I've are. ever met in my life. I mean, I think it would be really fun. I could see it if, like I said, I think the only way I would enjoy the movie is if it's kind of more of a tournament style and maybe, you know, in between fights, they're in the locker room talking shit to each other. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, because I mean, none of the Smash campaigns are very interesting. I want Chris Pratt to be Pikachu. How he's already Mario. I, well, Ryan Reynolds is Pikachu, Pikachu, dude. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, we do have a fun little segment right after this break. We're going to be going over the history of the Zelda games and just kind of like what led Nintendo to, you know, get to that point. Um, and we'll be right back after this break. Zach is going to take us off at the uh, the journey of Zelda, and it starts off with a very crucial member. Zach, who is it? The person is Shigeru Miyamoto. He is the creator of Zelda. He's the George Lucas happy of the Legend of Zelda series. Um, he incepted it into his brain. And uh, so he joined Nintendo in 1977, and you know he worked he worked on arcade games and da 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 da. Um, and then he, so rewind to when he was a child, he loved adventuring. He would go out into his backyard and stuff and he had crazy woods and stuff. He would just love exploring and wandering around and he would fantasize about all these crazy things. So, you know, when the time came, he said, you know, let's turn it into a video game. And hence was created the first Legend of Zelda game. Awesome. Yeah. Now, going off of what Zach said earlier, uh, Miyamoto had a lot of work in the early Nintendo creating arcade games and working on a very famous one. Um, He conceptualized three characters of his own, Donkey Kong, Jumpman, and a female character that would later be given the name Pauline. Now, this is what we know now as Donkey Kong. And then when this game got shipped to America, the character had been renamed Mario by the Nintendo's American branch. So this is one of the really first notable experiences of him working at Nintendo that's going to lead him up to uh, creating The Legend of Zelda. So 
while Super Mario was being worked on because, you know, Donkey Kong led to Super Mario because that was so popular, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they were trying to transition to consoles instead of arcade games. Arcade games, yes. Um, over the, over the years between the 70s and 80s transition. Anywho, um, while Mario Bros. was in development, Shigeru Miyamoto began working on a second game in, like at the same time. Um, they... So it originally started out, and this is interesting, it started out being a game where you build labyrinths and people explore the, the labyrinths, but uh, during like the prototype phase, uh, people found that exploring the labyrinths was way more fun than actually creating them, so they ditched the creating idea, and that's kind of where the dungeon exploration really first, excuse me, first came into Zelda. And this game was going to be the complete opposite of Mario. So th- as they were working on Mario, they wanted something that was going to hit like a totally different tone. Yeah. So as they were working on this game, Miyamoto and his team became kind of thinking about the image of what they wanted their adventure game to be about. They knew it was going to be more of like an RPG because there was a few that became like really popular in Japan at the time. Uh, And then they named the main character Link. And this is a symbol of the game setting, which is going to be a combination of the past and future with the player being able to travel between the two settings and serve as like a link between them. And we see this throughout pretty much every Zelda. There's always a few that don't have any time travel, but... Someone's traveling through time somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and Link was actually designed to be right-handed. And in order to make the pixel art a little bit easier, they made him left-handed, which was a kind of a little fun fact. I think that's a super fun fact. And he, Link wasn't right-handed again until Twilight Princess. And only if you did the motion controls for it, because predominantly people are right-handed. Um, so I just think that's super funny. And then he's also right-handed in, um, have you ever played, I'm sure you have the master quest on Ocarina of Time. Yeah. And where everything is flipped like a mirror. So he's right-handed in that because everything is mirrored, uh, which is neat. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Zach just knew that off the top of the head. He just went off script right there. So Zach knew that without any of our notes. (laughs) So as most of you know, the core aspect of Zelda is exploring all these dungeons so when they were first developing the the first game, uh, when they were creating all of the dungeons, they were originally mapped out on graph paper. Um, and like each square represented a single room and everything was kind of laid out like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, however, due to an error on one of the programmer's parts, um, only half of the data that they coded was used and the game ended up being only half of its original size. Um, but... Someone, uh, Miyamoto, ended up saying, you know what, maybe let's not have these gigantic sprawling dungeons and maybe just keep it short, like six to ten rooms. And I think that'll just be a better in terms of gameplay. And uh, I think that was a good decision. Yeah, I think that as we see now, like having a more interactive map and, you know, having a world that's a world to explore that has things in it and it's not just dead space is a lot more enjoyable than just having a bigger map. Totally. So as we know that there were some difficulties in development, including the soundtrack, they wanted to use a piece called um, Bolero that actually they couldn't use in the final game because of uh, a licensing error. Um, But despite these difficulties during development, The Legend of Zelda was a huge success, as we know. Um, It sold on two different consoles. It sold on the Famicom disc system and the Nintendo Entertainment System, and it sold over 6.5 million units. And it basically started a whole new genre, right? This is an action open world kind of exploration game that really had not been seen before. Just to put the amount of units it sold into perspective, 
that's about half of what Elden Ring sold. Which is crazy thinking back to like, because I mean, video games now are so much more popular and widely accepted, I feel, than in the late 80s, you know? Um, Also, a little fun fact about Bolero, um, they ended up using Bolero and they kind of credit it in Ocarina of Time because there is a song called Bolero of Fire. I remember that. And I, again, Zach is going off script, so his Zelda knowledge remains unmatched. What can I say? Uh... (laughs) So after the booming success of The Legend of Zelda, Nintendo decided, hey, let's make a second one. That first one worked out pretty good. Um, The second one (laughs) did not go as well in terms of gameplay. It's not accepted really among the community. Um, The second one was called The uh, The Legend of Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. Um, 4.3 million units were uh, sold, which that's still, even to today's standards, that's really good. Um, Funny enough, though, for the amount of hate and the amount of flaws that this game has, a lot of mainstays of the series were added in this uh, game. You know, the Triforce of Courage, the Towns, um, Dark Link made his first appearance in this one. Um, pretty cool, because in the first Legend of Zelda, you're you're collecting all the pieces for the Triforce of Power. And then in this one, they're like, oh, Link, you have the Triforce of Courage. That's pretty neat, huh? Um, but it's just kind of funny how... You know, people kind of forget that this about this game, yet it has so many of the mainstays that are still popping up to Zelda games today. Yeah, and some of these uh, things that fell short are due to that it was also releasing on the Famicom system, which did have some like severe hardware limitations. They could not mm-hmm. do as much as they wanted to. Totally. Um, and another weird thing about this game is that it comes from uh like a two there's two different ways that you play the game right you have the side scrolling perspective which is how most of the game is played and how they have the combat encounters then you have that top down view like the original zelda but most of the game was in that side scrolling perspective so it was a really weird shift in how the game was played Mm -hmm. from both series i'd like to think that they did that because of the success of mario which is a side scroller yeah um funny enough too going back to the towns real quick they're all named after the sages from uh ocarina of time Interesting. Yeah. And now we are at A Link to the Past, which many say is the best Zelda game of all time. I believe when we did our Zelda ranking episode, this was the one that we chose as the best game. No, second best. Well, it was kind of a tie between this one and Breath of the Wild. I think this, by far, Uh, in a way, is the best 2D Zelda. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, this was. they were two games in at this point. Um, A new Famicom system was being released, so they had a lot more... uh, things that they could improve as far as like a hardware and a code perspective. Uh, And they had the same team that was working on, you know, the original Zelda working on this game. And they had a lot of improvements that they wanted to do. They wanted to go back to that top down perspective and they wanted players to be able to interact with the environment more. An example of this is when you're pulling a switch or doing a lever, you actually press A and then go back to actually pull the switch back, which if you've played this game, you should be familiar with that puzzle Um, or those types of puzzles and how you are actually interacting with the environment in a lot more of a capacity. And it's funny because I feel like a lot of, I mean, modern games now to this day use similar mechanics to that. I mean, we're playing through Lego Star Wars right now, and even in some of the puzzles that you do, you have to hold something and pull back at the same time. I mean, for something so simple, it's still just sewing like utilized widely among most games 
you know, 30, 40 years later. Yeah. And at this time, a lot of games had come out that were, you know, fantasy settings and had puzzle solving and were more like RPG like. So they really wanted to kind of distinguish themselves with this uh, with this entrance into, you know, this new console and all this new hardware that they were allowed to use. So the benefit of this being the third game in the series is time. Funny enough, um, as you know, time went on, technology got more advanced. So the team was able to actually use ideas that they wanted to use in the first Legend of Zelda game, and they just couldn't due to either technical disadvantages or what have you. Um, so one of them was originally time travel, where Link would be able to time travel, but that still just kind of didn't really work out for them um they just kind of ditched it they did end up using the multi-world system so there's the light world and the dark world and that is like i feel like that's the kind of the gimmick of the game you know of the original gimmick of a lot of games it, well and it's a the lot gimmick of, the of a lot of the games now um and funny enough speaking of the gimmicks um similar to the adventure of link a lot of the mainstays of the zelda series such as the master sword and the sages were introduced in A Link to the Past. Also, this is the first game to have um, diagonal sword swinging. Uh, that was something that they really wanted to make. It kind of makes it a little bit more immersive. I mean, as immersive as a game like this can be. Obviously, there's like a graphical, you know, right discrepancy in what we have today. But that diagonal sword swinging was something that the developers really wanted to get in there. And they had to kind of rework how Link was swinging his sword, but they were able to do it. And obviously, if you play the game, it makes it the combat feel a lot more immersive and, you know, just a better overall experience. So you don't have to, like, you know, set yourself up to the left, right, up or down of an enemy. You can kind of slash in a different way. Yeah, it just, yeah, it makes it feel more fluid. Yeah, it seems like a small thing, but that was something that the developers really wanted to add. So a thing that they wanted to add in this game was the, you know, core features of using different items besides the sword and the shield, like arrows and bombs in tandem to create things like bomb arrows or fire arrows or ice arrows. Um, they felt like that they Link should always have his sword equipped. So this idea was actually shelved until the next game in the series. Uh, Miyamoto also wanted to include like an RPG like party setup, kind of like a JRPG where you manage a team and that Link would be accompanied by companion characters. But they really didn't work, and a lot of the time, they kind of felt like that was going to take away from the spirit of the game, where you're the lone hero, you know, solving puzzles and saving the princess. So this idea has actually never been used, uh, and instead, you know, the characters that they had created for this system uh, eventually being kind of dispersed throughout some of the other titles. Yeah, I th going back to the whole multiple items thing, that would just be crazy to me because, you know, I've... I've played this game. I love the Zelda franchise. But in this game alone, there's already so many items to begin with. So then to add on bomb arrows and ice arrows, yeah. like it's just, it's crazy. And they, I feel like, you know, I mean, they made up for it. They had like the ice wand, the fire wand, blah, blah, blah. So they still kind of got what they wanted. Yeah. And another thing that was scrapped was the idea of a multiple pass through the world so that you could end the game, you know, divulging from, you know, this very linear path that these RPGs had. Um, they couldn't do it because of memory constraints, just because at this time, you know, games were being sent out with very, very small memory compared to what we have today. But already, you know what I mean? They're already thinking about how to make this open world feel immersive, how to get your own player, you know, experience and kind of have something different than everybody else, which I think is really cool that they were that ambitious. So 
A Link to the Past was released in Japan in 91 of November. Didn't make it to America until 1992. Um, that happens, I feel like, with a lot of games, though. Yeah. Um, not nearly as big of a gap anymore, but I know even, you know, like, I know Elden Ring was released earlier to, like, a certain country. or, or, that, or that, was, versa, right? that was just due to time zone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's usually what it is now is, like, oh, well... It's released Tuesday here, but Monday in Australia, but that's because of the time zones. Um, but anyways, A Link to the Past sold 4.6 million copies worldwide, um, which is kind of a... I'm shocked that it's that low of a number compared yeah. to the first one. Um, I wonder why that is, because, I mean, this game is... I mean, and it's so funny, because this game is revered as, like, a classic and, you know, a huge influence to pretty much most open-world games that we have today. Yeah, I think a combination might be it was released on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah. And if you weren't alive or alive, if you weren't around in gaming at that time, like consoles were getting released pretty frequently because like these giant leaps and bounds were made in cartridges and memory. And so a lot of times you couldn't afford to move up to the next console. And if things were only getting released to the next console, you're just kind of like, hey, I'm going to play the games that I have. Um, also, another reason for that delay is that localization was huge back then, right? Mm -hmm. These games were being made in Japan and then had to be translated um, over to English. And you can find that there are some games that did a really good job with this and some games that really dropped the ball or they didn't care as much about the localization. Um, so that just me another reason why that delay was so, so drastic. Aonuma joined the Nintendo team after the uh, success of A Link Between Worlds. Uh, he graduated from the Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music in 1988. Um, he got his master's in composition design, and uh, as well as working on uh, Japanese karakuri puppets. I'm sorry if I butchered that. Um, his grandfather and uncle were carpenters, and he grew up watching them craft things which inspired him to do the same when he was a little guy uh whenever there was drafting or craft homework from school he would take the opportunity to use a hammer and nail to make creations of his own which i think is super duper cool so anuma starts working at nintendo and he hadn't really played a lot of video games he didn't have like a really huge interest in it it was just a job for him but he turned to his girlfriend at the time and asked him asked her to provide him with an introduction to games he played games like Dragon Quest on the PC, and he really started to enjoy them. He like stayed up all night, and uh, his girlfriend was coaching him like, "You need to go south five steps," and you know, just giving him the lay of the land on games. Um, over time, though, Anuma began to appreciate the fun of video games, and he found himself particularly fond of A Link to the Past. Zach butchered that in the last section. Yep, totally uh, said Between Worlds, my beats, like uh, the exact same game. <laughs> and so after working on a number of projects and collaborating with external developers, he eventually developed a game of his own, which was called Marvelous, Another Treasure Island. The game was released in 1996 and drew inspiration from A Link to the Past. Upon playing it, Miyamoto invited Anuma to work with him in the Zelda team on a new project that they were developing for the Nintendo 64. And I think we might know what game this is. I doubt it. So after development wrapped on A Link to the Past, the game's chief programmer managed to acquire a development kit for the Game Boy, and he started messing around with it. Um, and it was kind of like his hobby project of sorts, which is kind of cool. And at the time, the Zelda department only had access to a single Game Boy <laughs> development kit, and they used it to create the prototype for a Zelda-like game, which 
in turn turned into Link's Awakening. You thought we were going to be talking about <laughs> Ocarina of Time, didn't you? Ugh. Uh, so that this is just the chronological order of the games that got released. Obviously, as this is being worked on, Ocarina of Time is also being worked on. And the Game Boy was released in 1989 uh, alongside Super Mario Land, which was the first Mario game to be developed without the involvement of the Mario or Zelda team. Nice. So while the team was working on Link's Awakening, a popular show at the time, Twin Peaks, uh, was you know really enthralling people with the story of a number of characters in a small town. Now, Miyamoto had always kind of stressed that it wasn't a huge storytelling genre or type of game, and instead to prioritize fun and intuitiveness. But Miyamoto was busy working on other projects at the time, so the team decided to create a uh, Zelda-driven, you know, adventure with engaging side events and subplots. So this is kind of one of the first games that really engaged in that side quest mechanic that we really know and love from a lot of the later Zelda titles. And there are some, like, twists and turns in this. So basically, this was one of the first games that really had a really fleshed-out story, and they focused more on the story than just the game itself. And with the power of the Game Boy, they were able to pull it off because they were surprised at how powerful the Game Boy actually was. So fast forward to 1995, that's when the first signs of a 3D Zelda were kind of manifesting and coming to light. Um, And they actually made a tech demo of Link rendered using the 3D polygons on the N64, which was then shown to the public at Nintendo Space World event in 1995 prior to the release of the system. Um, which is, uh, why don't, why don't people do that anymore? I mean, we have like game sh- development shows and stuff like that, but it's not really like games in development. It's like stuff that they've already kind of polished, which I think is a little lame. I would like to see some gross ass polygons Ooh, me like, too. bashing up against each other. Me too. I want to be able to see through the dude's head. So that way, when I get the game, I'm like, yo, this is way better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then the Nintendo 64 launches and it does release alongside Super Mario 64. Now, they see the success that they kind of imagined. This was a huge console. I owned one growing up, and I still do. Uh, Some of our favorite games got released on this console, and what they wanted to do was they kind of wanted to originally mimic the way that Super Mario 64 worked, right? You have one central hub, and that hub was the castle in Super Mario 64, and then Mario jumps into the paintings, and he goes to different places. They wanted to do that with The Legend of Zelda, uh, Ocarina of Time, But then they kind of decided to deviate away from that. And instead, we have that large open world that we're so used to seeing. So being the first 3D Zelda game, there was just a myriad of hurdles that they had to overcome, one of which was combat, which is, I mean, if you know the history of these games, making the combat was notoriously hard. They were having such a hard time figuring out how to make the combat work in a 3D setting. So they decided to basically invent what is now known as Z-targeting um, and even, you know, if you want to dive in further, known as the lock-on, which is basically an invisible line connecting the player to an enemy so that way you're always looking at them, they're always at the forefront and it's a lot easier to move towards them and, and attack them. And now this is a staple of many games, most notably Breath of the Wild, Elden Ring, basically any 3D game where you need to keep your target in front of you and you can kind of pivot around them. Um, uh, This concept had already kind of appeared in Super Mario 65, where if the player had tried to read a signpost, they would just sometimes end up going around it in circles. So this was a clever way to kind of fix that problem. The team also faced a lot of problems with memory. Um, They wanted a lot of things to be in this game, but they didn't have the hardware capabilities to do that. So a little clever fix that they did 
was that they made every character in Link's Village would have their own personal Navi-like fairy. That means you can kind of get away with just displaying someone's fairy from a distance, and as they got closer, then it could get rendered in. So instead of having all the memory being allocated to making sure every character in their dialogue and you know their side quests, whatever, um, they could just kind of be rendered in as Link approached them. Also, uh, a little fun fact, as the game story started to expand, they had all these ideas that they wanted to incorporate into games, right? And the team working on these games would kind of brainstorm for both Mario and Legend, uh, Zelda. And they would kind of categorize their ideas into, oh, this is a Mario idea. This could be really cool for Mario. Or this is a Zelda idea. This could be cool for Zelda. And so they kind of just reserving certain ideas for Zelda games. And then they would just refer to those notes and be like, how can we get this in the game? So you know how we mentioned that Aonuma joined the team? Well, the whole his big role in all of this is because of his talent as a puppet designer, it really helped him visualize the kind of logistical parts of like moving and for like complex things in 3d dungeons and everything. Um, you know, he, the water temple is like, because of him, he, he really like that, that was his baby almost. Um, you know, and he collabed with a lot of the other development team, uh, routinely tweaking, his dungeons uh to accommodate the different items like the hook shot um and stuff like that uh and just making sure that everything kind of ran smoothly so anuma kind of grew into this role now known as the systems director where he was really in charge of like the big picture 3d space modeling of you know he might not be coding everything out but he's thinking about how it's all going to work and intertwine with each other after ocarina of time developers needed to learn how to manage 3d cameras physics lighting all that technical minutiae have you um and it was getting really expensive to make 3d games with games such as super mario 64 ocarina of time as we just mentioned and tomb raider and player expectations were at an all-time high um not to mention the nintendo 64 just was not really competing in terms of power with the playstation so they were really struggling on how to really make games on it that would be up to par with the playstation Zach, can you tell me what minutia means? So as we all know, after Ocarina of Time comes Majora's Mask. And although there was a really large team working on this, they were worried that it was going to take about three years to make. So they kind of decided that, hey, why don't we do it in one year? So obviously they used the same engine as Ocarina of Time in order to create Majora's Mask. And then they threw in that Groundhog Day loop that we're all very familiar with. Every three days, the game will reset. This was a absolute time saver for the development team, and they actually got to reuse a ton of assets. So that is why they were able to create Majora's Mask so quickly. The team had decided from the outset that they wanted to create a darker, more mature Zelda game, which reflected in the game's characters as well as as well as the artwork. And uh, they wanted to stick with the time travel concept. Um, it called for the game to be set over the course of a week. However, the team felt that that might be a little too complicated, especially with all of the scheduling that the townsfolk had, that that was kind of the gameplay loop that they really wanted to focus around. And they thought that it might be a little too hard for players to remember if the game was set over the course of a week. So while Ocarina of Time was designed to be like a hospitable experience for the players, Majora's Mask was created as more of a challenge to see if they had what it took. And it was actually designed to be played after Ocarina of Time, so people would already be familiar with the concept and the controls and everything like that. It was a bigger project than they anticipated. They had to pull members from the Ocarina of Time team into the project. And then they, you know, released the game on April 2000 in Japan. 
So during the development of Majora's Mask, Nintendo had partnered with Capcom, and they decided that they were going to make some handheld Zeldas. So the original plan was to make a trilogy. However, I some complications with the Game Boy. It was just harder to make games of that scope on it. So they compromised and they said, you know what? We'll just make two games. And those games were titled Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. So Akamoto, who was the founder of Flagship and was in charge of these Zelda games, said that they wanted to go in a different direction from the big serious story games that were coming out like Final Fantasy. This is an action-oriented RPG. It's a lighter style, kind of like a weekly TV drama as opposed to an epic film. And we know that we could use the same basic style as the existing Zelda games and make two really fun games. We also like the possibility of having multiple endings and the replay, replay value that you get from linking two games. Since the two games, which were finally dubbed Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, were being developed alongside Majora's Mask, references to that game, as well as its predecessor, were included. Oracle of Ages contained characters that appeared in Majora's Mask, while Seasons, the player would meet characters from Ocarina of Time. So Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages were eventually released on the same day, first in Japan and then in North America and Europe. As intended, the games were designed to be played in any order, with the, the second serving as a sequel to the first. Now, they were both delayed, and they were just published just a month prior to the Nintendo's next portable platform, the Game Boy Advance, which is a little unfortunate. But they still went on to sell a combined total of 3.96 million units worldwide, and would lead to director Hedemaro Fujibayashi joining Nintendo as a full-time employee of the company years later. In August 2000, Nintendo officially revealed Project Dolphin, dubbing it the Nintendo GameCube. At E3 the following year, they unveiled 15 launch titles, which among them included a new Legend of Zelda. They also released footage of what this new Zelda might look like. It was super like hyper-realistic. It was Link fighting a Ganon-like creature, and everyone was super excited for the future of the franchise. If you tuned in the last episode, this is what me and Stella were talking about when uh, eventually they would release uh, Wind Waker after this tech demo. And everyone was really confused because they saw this really realistic style that kind of mimicked Ocarina of Time, which is better graphics. And people were very confused overall. So this was kind of a weird move by Nintendo. And we're going to get into why that happened. So at this point, some of the character designers, both who had worked on the Space World 2000 tech demo, which is what we just talked about, Felt like they needed to create something entirely new instead of doing the same thing that Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask did. And that's how we got Toon Link. They pitched this idea for a cartoon Link, and it was very well received by the development team. Animation tests soon followed, and the team began experimenting with how this new Link was going to fight the monsters. This resulted in a demo reel, which convinced the designers and the director that this was the way to go. And that cell shading, or... Tune shading techniques would help achieve the visuals they envisioned. Pretty interesting how this is one of the first games that have had uh, cell shading in it. I did not expect Wind Waker to be like that. Yeah, I know. Such an iconic art style. So at this point, the team had realized a lot of the advantages that this new visual was giving them. Uh, it was easier to make puzzles and mechanics stand out in a you know meaningful way. And that the belief among the team at the time was that the photorealistic visuals actually made it more difficult to convey things. So that's why they went with this cartoony or cel-shaded type style for Wind Waker. The development team had decided to set this new Zelda game among the seas early on in the development process. During this, the team envisioned what sort of characters would reside in the world and what they would look like and how the world's mechanics would all come together. So after, you know, the development team had been working on this game, they were going to show off a clip at Space World 2001 and then followed by a playable demo at E3 the next year. 
reactions to this game were, you know, varied. And a lot of people were assuming that Nintendo was going for the more childlike audience uh, with this game. While pre-orders and initial sales for The Wind Waker were satisfactory, they began to lose steam pretty quick. Um, afterwards, growing to just 4.43 million units worldwide, which was far lower than Ocarina of Time's 7.6 million. In Japan, this was largely attributed to the fact that the video game market had started to decline. Meanwhile, in the West, sales were low primarily due to Wind Waker's cartoonish visual style, which we had talked about earlier. Um, and it, it had proven unpopular with the Legend of Zelda audience in North America. And I just find that so funny because you look now and it's regarded as one of the best in the entire series. Yeah, it, it, it it's a good game. I think we all know that. It's just I like very like reactionary take on our part. Yeah, like we talked about it in the last episode. It's just so hard to go from, you know, what we were used to, like the last two installments of the game were, you know, photorealistic to the point that a 64 could make it photorealistic. <laughs> but it was just like a really big shock to some of the diehard fans. And I could see why the sales numbers just weren't there. Following Wind Waker, we're going to be at a point where uh, the Legend of Zelda series is trying to juggle its two audiences, right? It has the needs of Western and Japanese audiences. And that led to Miyamoto, you know, encouraging the staff to think up of new gimmicks and ideas to kind of combat Japan's declining video game market. And it often led to games that may have felt like they just didn't hit the mark with either of them or they were trying to dip their toes into both. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So at this point in the recording, we have realized that there is a lot of Zelda games that can't be covered in one episode. So going forward, we are going to cover mostly just the console games. If there's something really important from a handheld, we'll throw it in there. But maybe we can do a different episode just for the handhelds because there's a lot of them and they are ran by some different teams. So there's just like a ton of history to get into. So thank you for being patient and understanding. So in 2003, the Japanese video game market had really declined both in terms of hardware and software sales. This was being referred to as a gamer drift where existing customers were losing interest in video games and not enough of the younger customers were being created to take their place. This was something that Nintendo took very seriously and they had attributed the low sales of Wind Waker to this phenomenon. And as a result of the low sales of Wind Waker, the Nintendo team in North America didn't really know what to do with the Legend of Zelda franchise and where it needed to go next. And they weren't exactly sure what the future would hold. So by the time that Wind Waker was released, game development costs on consoles had kind of risen significantly. You had to get more people, things costed more. And they felt like Wind Waker really alienated the upper teen audience that represented the typical Zelda player in North America. And then this leads them to start to design and, you know, develop Twilight Princess. At this time, Nintendo was already planning the next Zelda game for the GameCube, they wanted to make Wind Waker 2, but Toon Link just did not look right riding on horseback like Link did in Ocarina of Time. They tried making him look older, and that wasn't really working either. So they just scrapped the idea completely and just said, no Wind Waker 2. So at this time, the team really decided that they wanted to hone in on what made Ocarina of Time so popular. Realistic details, a fantasy setting where you can explore... And they, you know, wanted to create something like would have, what would eventually be Twilight Princess. And one thing that they also really wanted to focus on was using the hardware to the fullest capabilities, which is something that they were very limited in in the 64. But now with the GameCube, a better processor, better technology, they were able to make a much more realistic version of what they kind of anticipated then. One feature that they really wanted to be in this new Zelda was combat on horseback. So over the next four months, the developers created a teaser trailer prototype that they could show off at E3 in 2004. 
And this was something that they really wanted to do in 64, but they just did not have the capabilities to do so. They showed this footage at the 2004 E3 event and it would receive a standing ovation. People loved this style and they were really hyped for this game to eventually come out. And during the you know, early stages of development, people were really excited and this kind of created a lot of hype for the game um, that would lead up to its release. So the development team initially planned to have Link tra transform into a wolf at the very beginning of the game. While Alnuma liked the idea of disorienting the player at the very beginning, forcing them to learn their way around as a wolf, the idea was completely vetoed by Miyamoto. He was not a fan. So Miyamoto comes back to the project and notices that it's kind of in disarray. There's not really a core idea of what they want the game to do. They have the wolf demo. They have a lot of the parts, but they're not really connected. Also, playing as Link didn't feel new or fresh. So what they decided to do is since this game is going to be launched on the GameCube and the Nintendo Wii, they decided to add motion controls to kind of make it feel a little bit more exciting for the player. So after a couple delays, blah, 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 you know how it all works. Twilight Princess was released. It ended up selling 8.85 million units worldwide, which was the highest sales in the series to this point. Beat out Ocarina of Time. Big, big excitement for the whole team at Nintendo. And But it did get released for two consoles, so I feel this like we true. have to keep that into perspective. Um, but even then, it was a big success, and it was definitely a return to the franchise that they wanted. Without this, they probably would have maybe scrapped it like they did with like the Metroid series. Obviously not Dread, but you know. Yeah. It wasn't doing too hot before this. So after Twilight Princess, Skyward Sword began development in 2007. And one of the things that kind of was in their minds as they were creating this was creating, you know, really good sword fighting with the motion controls. At the time, the original Wiimote was not going to do it. So they were experimenting with the Wii Motion Plus, which is an additional add-on to the controller that makes it a little bit easier to control. The Wii Motion Plus was extremely sensitive and they really wanted this to work. And I don't know about you, but uh, I played this game when it came out on the Wii and it was very hard. The, it was awful. The motion controls were very difficult and it was probably, I don't want to speak for everybody, but it's a lot of people's least favorite Zelda game. And not just for the motion controls, but it does get a bad rep on like the game design aspect as well. But we're going to hop into the history and kind of see where it went wrong. Or maybe right, depending on how much you like that game. So once the team was comfortable with how the Wii Motion Plus worked, they started brainstorming ways to use it in other aspects of the game. This led to how a lot of the menus worked. They decided that a radial menu, when you pulled it up, would be the best option. So that way you can just circle it around to select things, as well as, you know, just lots of other things. They they decided to use the bow, drawing the bow, throwing the bombs, everything. They just wanted to do motion control at this point. So in this installment, they kind of ditched the idea of having like a traversable overworld, which is prevalent in a lot of games. So instead of instead of that, in this game, you kind of like skydive from the location and to get to new places. And they kind of made it seem like the overworld was the dungeon itself. And this is probably one of the things that people complain about the most is having to revisit certain areas over and over and over again without it feeling very different. I think what we've learned from Breath of the Wild and Ocarina of Time and a lot of these games is that having that traversable overworld, like having that really open RPG feel is what makes a Zelda game a Zelda game. I don't know. That's just me, though. So for those of you that don't know, the continuity of the Legend of Zelda story is kind of all over the place. At this point, the only official direct sequels to games that we had were Majora to Ocarina and Zelda 2 to Zelda 1. Other than that, they were, as far as we knew, all just separate stories until in Wind Waker, the story kind of took a different 
direction and it made it seem like, well, oh man, this one's also connected to Ocarina of Time. So then Nintendo did a lot of legwork to try to retcon everything and double back. And when Skyward Sword was announced, they were saying that this was the first chronological instance of the Legend of Zelda story. Yeah, and there's like a lot of lore that's kind of set up in this. If you've ever used like the Hyrule Historia, like there's a ton mm-hmm. of stuff that is covered in uh, Skyward Sword that will be, you know, used later on in the series, even though a lot of these games came out before it. So this game had really positive critic reviews, but I had really kind of a mixed feeling as well as like player reviews. Um, this game did sell about 3.67 million units. So compared to Twilight Princess, this was pretty low and it kind of, makes sense because there was a lot of things that weren't prevalent in this game or that were kind of seemingly forced in this game that fans just did not enjoy. But it was kind of intuitive at the time, so I could see why critics gave it a good rating or how the critics enjoyed it. So we have reached Breath of the Wild. Zach is as giddy as can be. Yeah, I can't wait. And at this point, Zelda executives knew that Skyward Sword that people did not like the linear restrictive nature of the game. Like that game felt more like a Mario game to some than it did a Zelda game. So what do they do? They're going to make a really big world for everyone to explore. And that is how we got the really the initial concept of a pure open world Zelda, which we got in Breath of the Wild. So originally Breath of the Wild was set to only release for the Wii U and the early concepts and development for this had two broad goals. Number one, to create an open world game set in a large seamless environment, which we had just mentioned. And number two was to rethink the entire conventions of the Zelda series. They wanted to do something totally different that they haven't really done ever for a Zelda game. So going off of rethinking the conventions of the game, the team suggested by reimagining Link in the kind of adventures he would go on, they had considered the amount of freedom to brainstorm interesting takes on the character. They just wanted anything the team could think of an early idea possessed link with an artificial arm that would be capable of turning into different items, which they're actually recycling for what looks, it looks like they're recycling this for the next breath of the wild. They also had an idea where, and this was actually a game pitch, the legend of Zelda invasion, which would see aliens invading Hyrule and stealing cattle, similar to that side mission in Majora's mask, as well as, um, Hyrule Wars, which was a game where Link would charge across a war-torn battlefield with enemies shooting laser beams. So development on the new Legend of Zelda game for the Wii U kicked off in 2013. The Skyward Sword director had been put in charge and began pondering how to kind of rethink the conventions of Zelda, but still within the structures of an open world game. What they came up with was they were going to create a game that had no walls. Basically, you could traverse anywhere, do anything at any point. And that's pretty much what we got in Breath of the Wild. But it was kind of revolutionary for the time, considering that a large part of Zelda's core gameplay mechanics included dungeons, which we see how they kind of did that very tastefully in Breath of the Wild. But the whole overworld was pretty much explorable from the get-go. And as we've seen with like speedrunners and stuff, you cannot stop people from breaking this game, which is a huge reason why it's been so popular. So one of the team's primary objectives was to ensure that the game world felt dense enough they did this by balancing three keywords distance density and time spent because this was nintendo's first open world project um the terrain artists would walk around the company's hometown of kyoto with a map of the city and they just kind of used the experience to determine just how large they wanted the game map to be and how long it would take you to actually traverse it and this would also give the team a sense of how to spread events out enemy such as enemy counters 
other elements across the world, as well as accounting for both distance and density. They also really wanted to make sure that the amount of time the player might spend on a single element placed in the game world was, you know, depending on the size and complexity of what they ran into in the world. And I think that this is the one thing that like, obviously it's a really good game. Most people would say it's like their favorite game. I do think this is one thing they did struggle with, right? Like to me, 100%. sometimes when you're walking through, even if it's realistic, right? Even if it's realistic for like a natural setting, it's just, it's a video game. Sometimes it's just a little boring. I don't want to have to walk 10 minutes, but hey. No, I couldn't agree more. That's just me. So eventually this new Zelda's world is going to be 12 times the size of Twilight Princesses. Um, and again, we know that this released on the Switch. It was not ended up releasing on the Wii U. No, it did release on the Wii U as well. It released. It was a similar situation to Twilight Princess, um, where it released on the GameCube and the Wii, because I think due to the really crappy sales for the Wii U, they're like, ah, I don't think we're gonna make a lot of money on this one. So they decided to also make it a launch title for the Switch. That's just my guess. Zach, you really couldn't just let me make that mistake, and then we just use a different take where I get it right. Okay, fine. All right, it it released on both. <laughs> So, for those of you that don't know, Breath of the Wild, it did all right, I guess. It's a pretty good it's, game. It's a pretty good game. <laughs> this game sold 18 million units across the Nintendo Switch and the Wii U, which, um, if you guys know numbers, creamed any other Zelda game ever. Uh, yeah, the five people that got on the Wii U, I bet, still had a really good time with it. Oh, 100%. Um, you know, this is, um, um, this is easily one of... Nintendo's most successful games ever. Yeah, it's pretty good. I didn't buy it. I just used Zach's copy. Whatever. <laughs> so we really want to thank you all for listening and tuning into this episode. It was a lot different than what we've done in the past. We've done a lot of you know content creator and gamer interviews, and we're still going to do that part of the podcast, but we wanted to add some variety. So this is our first hand at like educational content, and I think it went okay. But if you have any feedback, please let us know. And we are reaching towards the end. So, Zach, what do we do at the end of every episode? We tell you to follow us on everything. Please go check us out on Twitter, at Pixel Pals Podcast, uh, TikTok as well. We have a Patreon now. The link is in the Twitter. If you guys want to support us financially, that would be amazing. Um, I don't know if I've ever told Zach this. I also link all of this stuff in the episode description as well. So there is going to be hyperlinks to our Patreon, Twitter, and email below. Yeah, but as a podcast listener, I'm not going to lie. I never check out the I literally never read them either. But so, if you felt the call to action, feel free. All right. Pixel Pals out. Pixel Pals out. Pixel Pals out.